Good morning. It is good to be back here. My family and I spent 11 very happy years in Stillwater, and so we're always excited to come back here and see everyone. I have uh, an app on my phone. It's called Memento Mori, which is Latin for remember that you will die. Okay, so this app, it's advertised as the ultimate productivity tool. And so what you do is you go into it and you put in your birthday, and then you put in um, how long you think you're going to live. And so I downloaded the app, I put in my birthday, and then I Googled, you know, how, what's life expectancy for an American male born in 1973, and it was 79 years, so I put that in. And immediately, it spits out a number, 33.290135, and then the number immediately starts counting down. And uh, so the productivity angle here is now that you know how much time, exactly how much time you have left, well, now it's time to get going on everything that you got to accomplish in that time span, Right? And I realized that I'm over halfway done, right? According to this app, I'm more than 58% of the way towards my expiration date. Now, of course, that's assuming that I make it to my life expectancy, something that is not at all guaranteed, is it? It made a big impression on Rachel and me, my wife and I, uh, when about a year or so after we left Waco, where we went to college and got married, we heard the news about two different men in Waco. One was a 38-year-old dad that uh, we knew very well. Rachel had uh, babysat his children. He was playing ball, uh, throwing a baseball with his son one day, had a brain aneurysm and died on the way to the hospital. The other was a 33-year-old pastor four little children, was doing a baptism when a live microphone fell in the water, electrocuted him, died instantly. We are not guaranteed tomorrow, are we? I could die tonight, I could die next week, I could die next year. And as the saying, the saying is true, right, the death is still undefeated. But I'm going to encourage you today to memento mori, to remember that you will die. But the reason I'm going to encourage you in that is not just to make you more productive, to help you finish all the things you want to do in life. Uh, Because what the app doesn't say, but what the Bible does say, is that it's a good thing, a necessary thing, to not only think about the day of your death, but think about life after death. The book of Hebrews talks about death and what it calls the slavery of death. Hebrews was probably originally a sermon, and, uh, and so it begins with the preacher telling his congregation all about who Jesus is. And basically he asks, who do you think is great? And then whoever you think is great, I'm going to show you how Jesus is greater. You think the prophets in the Old Testament were great? Well, yeah, they were great, courageous men that God spoke through. But 
Now God has spoken finally and for all time through his son. And so Jesus is greater than all the prophets. And then he talks about the angels. You think the angels are great? Has God ever asked an angel to sit at his right hand? No, but that's where Jesus sits. What about Moses, the towering figure of the Old Testament? Well, he was a great servant, but Jesus is a greater servant because he was son. And on and on, all these comparisons. And in the midst of all these comparisons, uh, the preacher makes the point that one reason that Jesus is great is because he was humble. In fact, he humbled himself to the point of suffering and death, but his death has incredible ramifications for us. And we're going to read about those ramifications in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 9. So if you would please stand, if you are able, as we read Hebrews chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus came to set us free from the devil who has the power of death. And that's important because most people, I think, have a nagging fear of death. Now, my parents live in this magical place they call the villages in Florida. It's, it is a huge retirement community for seniors 55 years and up. It has 56 golf courses, state-of-the-art recreation centers, over 3,000 activity groups for basically whatever you want to do. The sole focus of the villages is to keep older people feeling young. And, uh, when my parents first moved there, we all went and we took a tour of the villages. And the tour guide, who was also a resident, uh, just extolled all the virtues of the place, right? She was so proud of it. I talked about all the wonderful amenities that there are, how safe, how friendly everyone is. In fact, the only problem at the villages is there's not enough time in the day to do all the golf, tennis, billiards, trivia, anything you want to do. That's the only problem. And it was interesting because our tour guide never mentioned hospice services or any end-of-life care services there. Now, the closest she got was talking about how amazing the doctors are and how uh, readily available the health care is. But she realized, right? Nobody wants to think about, nobody wants to hear about end-of-life things. Everyone wants the fountain of youth. 
Many churches used to have graveyards right next to their sanctuaries, right? And they would, they would uh, emphasize burials and tombstones to really encourage people to think about death and eternity. We don't do that anymore, right? We don't, we don't build graveyards so gloomy next to our happy churches. In fact, I think even funerals today are often changed into what? Celebrations of life rather than contemplations of death. And yes, it can be both for sure. But we don't like thinking about death, do we? we our modern culture does everything it can to help us not think about it. But is that healthy? Because I don't think it is. Because I think that the Bible actually encourages us to confront our fears. And it says that the power of evil is the fear of death. The power of the devil is the fear of death. In verses 14 and 15, what we read, the author of Hebrews connects slavery with the fear of death. Uh, He says that the devil has the power of death and that he holds it over us to keep us enslaved. Now, that's it's an interesting picture, isn't it? It's not, this is a slavery that doesn't include chains. It's not a physical slavery. It's a slavery of what? Of the mind, right? In other words, when we fear death, we are held captive by that fear. And the devil has us right where he wants us, enslaved to that fear. In his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker He theorizes that the fear of death and the need to suppress the fear is what drives most of human behavior. That's an interesting hypothesis, isn't it? But we know, I mean, we can point to some things, some very obvious cases of that, obvious things that come from the fear of death, like fear of roller coasters. What is that? I have a friend who's deathly afraid of roller coasters. And I don't think it's, it's not because he doesn't like being off the ground or going real fast. What's he afraid of? Crashing, right? <laughs> fear of roller coasters is ultimately the fear of death. But then there's some not so obvious uh, results from the fear of death. The, the first thing is I think we spend a massive amount of money to try to put off death, Right? Our diets, nutritionists, gyms, spas, plastic surgery, all of these things to make us feel, at the very least, like we're prolonging our lives and at best maybe cheating death. For many people, they will spend, statistics tell us, more on healthcare in the last six months of their lives than they do the rest of their lives. Even for terminal patients, many family members are willing to spend whatever it takes to keep our family members as alive as long as technologically possible. And, and I want to be very careful here, right? I'm, I'm all for good medicine, and, and, and I imagine some of you have maybe have been in that difficult situation, but we just need to be honest, right, that it's, it's really hard to let go. And we will often do whatever it takes to not have to face death, which is, which is what the second result of our fear of death is about. It's, 
it's really that we often find ourselves unable to talk to our friends and family members about death. You know, I've had, I've had three surgeries in my life, and each time when I went in for them, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I knew what we were fixing, right, of course, but I didn't really know the process, and so I was a little anxious, but as soon as someone really talked me through it, right, this is, this is what we're going to do, this is, you're going to feel a little bit of pain here, right, and then I'm going to ask you to start counting down from 100, and, and then when you wake up, you may experience some of these things, and once they walked me through that, the anxiety went away. Okay, okay, I know what to do. Well, people who are facing death, people who are dying need the same thing. Right? They, need, they need to hear from us that you are going to die. But when you wake up, you are going to be with Jesus. They need to hear that, but I think so many of us are so busy avoiding that topic that holding on to any slim hope of a miraculous recovery that we're often unable to have that talk. Christian, do we have the courage to talk about what's happening? Of all people, we should be able to talk about life and death issues. And by the way, I would say if you're over the age of 25, you need to have a will and an advanced care directive. It is not fair to your family members to have to guess if you're in a coma or in a place where you can't tell them what you want. But probably the worst part of living with the fear of death, I think, is that we're hindered from really loving others. There's a really good movie that came out a few years ago called Of Gods and Men. And it tells the true story of some monks who were living in a monastery in Algeria. And they spent a lot of their time caring for people in their village, their community, especially the sick and the poor. And in 1991, uh, radical Islamic groups began persecuting and killing Christians in Algeria. And it got so bad that the monks were were told by the government that they should leave the country immediately. But to do so would have been really to abandon their friends and their neighbors. And there's a scene in the movie where the leader of the monastery, Christian, is talking to the monastery doctor, whose name is Luke. And uh, this, this doctor has been treating some of the wounded Muslim rebels, and so Christian is in you know, is, is telling Luke that he needs to be very careful around these men. And the doctor, Luke, he says this. He says, throughout my career, I've met all sorts of different people, including Nazis and even the devil. And I'm not scared of terrorists, even less of the army. And I'm not scared of death. I'm a free man. How can he say that? Especially when we, we find out that in 1996, all those monks did make the decision to stay and they were all murdered by the jihadists. And the only answer is that his love for others was stronger than his fear of losing his own life. You know, one of the, I think one of the worst byproducts of our fear is that we often keep our kids 
from wanting to do hard things. I had a friend who wanted, who really felt like God was calling him and then a missions organization was calling him to go serve in Thailand. But his parents were so afraid of what might happen that they didn't want him to go. Essentially, they didn't want him to follow Jesus' call because of their fear. Fear keeps us from love. But perfect love casts out fear. I think we can begin to get rid of the fear by seeing that Jesus died to take away our fear of death. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus tasted death for us. And then verses 14 and 15 tell us that through his death, that he is destroying the devil and delivering us from our slavery to the fear of death. Isn't that an interesting paradox? Jesus defeated death not by waving his hand or gathering up all the horcruxes or something like that, right? Jesus defeated death by dying, by letting himself be crucified. And in doing so, he took on himself the penalty for the sins of his people. Because the, the penalty for our sins, the wages of, the sin, of our sin is death, both physical and eternal death. But Jesus tasted death so that we would not have to taste the second death, eternal death, that we would have life. And that changes everything, doesn't it? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death, and as we sang earlier today, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Since Jesus died and rose again, death has no hold on us. And so we don't have to be afraid of what awaits us after we die. Now, I don't want to imply that we should be flippant about death or that we shouldn't be sad when someone dies. No, we should grieve when someone we love dies. God intended for us to live forever, but after the fall, death has kept us, prevented us from living well and living forever. And so we should grieve. There's one of my favorite books. This is The Magician's Nephew from the Chronicles of Narnia. In the book, a young boy Diggory finds himself in the land of Narnia and uh, he, he meets the lion, Aslan, and, and watches as Aslan does all these amazing things. And at one point, Aslan asks Diggory to go on a mission for him. But Diggory can't stop thinking about his mother, who is gravely ill back at home. And C.S. Lewis writes, says, Diggory had had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one would try to make bargains with. But he thought of his mother, and a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, Diggory had had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them, but now in his despair, he looked up in his face And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. 
They were such big, bright tears compared to with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than what he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. When we grieve, we're following Jesus' example. When Jesus came to the grave of his friend Lazarus, what did he do? He wept. And then he raised him up from the grave. And he has promised that he is going to raise us up as well. And so we should grieve death but not be afraid of it because Jesus has overcome it for us. So that leaves a big question, I think, which is why? Why, why aren't more Christians facing death without fear? And I think the answer is because we're living, we're believing the wrong story, or at least an incomplete story. See, I think, I think a typical story, even for Christians, sounds something like this, right? I, I have about 80 or so years to live, and, and life is hard and a struggle, but all the great relationships I have are all here, and all the really fun things like skiing and kissing and chocolate, it's all here in this life, right? And, and then I'm going to die, and either it's all over, or if I've been good, I'm going to go to heaven, and my soul's going to go there, and I'm gonna just going to sing worship songs, I guess, and play the harp for all eternity. And No wonder death seems so terrible. That sounds boring and kind of awful. Thankfully, this, the biblical story is infinitely better than that. So the biblical story is that God gives us our lives and so much, however much time you have here, whether you grow old or whether you die young, that time was given to you by him to follow him here in this life. And everything we do in this life for his sake is going to follow us into the next life and be a part of our life there and part of his kingdom forever. And whatever you think about the next life, it is infinitely better than you can imagine. Imagine your best day here on earth. Multiply it by a thousand. You're going to start getting at the wonder and the glory of eternity. For here, we are only partly alive, burdened by sin and frailty, but there we will be fully alive unburdened by the effects of sin and time. Rachel's grandfather died earlier this year. He was 96 years old. And uh, by the end, he had lost use of his legs and was coming in and out of consciousness. But he was ready to go. He'd been ready to go for seven years since his wife had died. Every time I talked to him, he'd say, Jonathan, I'm ready to go. I hope the Lord will take me soon. And it was really refreshing to see not only his faith, but the faith of Rachel's extended family. 
To see the death is not the end. That for Grandpa Warren, it will be a reunion, a place where everything will be made new. And so we grieve death, but we're not afraid of it because Jesus is on the other side of it. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that Jesus has risen. That though he died, he came back to life. That he got a glorified body. And that we are going to get glorified bodies as well. The Lord's Supper is also a signpost pointing to the future, pointing to the time when we will eat this supper at the marriage feast of the Lamb. But it takes faith to get here. Uh, and, And that It's the kind of faith we need to eat the supper properly. And that faith is not just mystical belief that somehow everything's going to work out in the end. That faith is a faith and a historical faith in things that happened in history and has biblical content to it. That faith is summarized in Colossians chapter 1, which we're going to read together as our confession of faith. Would you please stand